Section thirteen of The Soul of London by Ford Maddox Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five continued. So it seems as if the great figure as a human factor has gone, and it seems as if London will never again know another Dr. Johnson, although at a hundred street corners you might meet men as wise, as mordant, as dogmatic, as unhappy, as vivacious, as great figures. This, however, is not an indictment of London. It is rather the mere statement of losses in a great balance-sheet. We have lost great figures, old buildings, all touch with history, much of Christian kindness, much of our fear of public opinion, much of our capacity for interest in our fellow-men, much of our powers of abstract reasoning, much of our old faiths. We have gained a certain amount of public efficiency, the avoidance of much overlapping, a dim sort of idea of how the world may be carried forward, a comfortable indifference to many sham observances, class distinctions, and personal infringements of the social codes, and gradually we are evolving a practical means of living together in the great city. If the profit side of the account sheet seems unsubstantial, that is only because of poor humanity's innate inability to see, to understand, the good of its own day because of the sentimentality of poor humanity that will continue to think an old faith more attractive than an efficient system of local government. We are, after all, still troubled by the illusions of our dead poets. So speaks the philosopher, who stands midway between the individualist and the theorist. Outside, in the woods, it is spring, and nature is preparing for her tremendous waste of individual leaves, birds, gnats, and small and great beasts. There may be sun there, and certainly the sap is stirring, or there may be cloud-shapes to be seen, and there is always a sky, but I stand in my window and look down the long perspective of a street. It vanishes, dwindles, grows uncertain, and fades into a black and uniform opacity. There is no sky, or the sky has descended upon earth like a grey pall. There is no colour visible anywhere but grey, save for the red of a letter-box that seems to float, blotted, in vapour, and the white triangular tops of the lamp-posts. Through the gloom hail falls steadily and close, like fine rain, and behind it everything is flat, dim, as if the house-fronts, the garden-walls, the pavements, were cloudy forms printed in grey upon a large cloth. Suddenly space exists. It is as if a red torch were shaken in the air and quenched. That is lightning, a reminder of the outside world that we have half forgotten. A broad shaft of sunlight reddens for an instant, in the distance, the white square face of a house whose dark windows seem to peer back like gloomy eyes. It fades, and the eye is drawn upwards to an immense and sullen glow the edge of a heavy cloud that towers perpendicularly on high. The vast pall of vapour that overspreads London becomes for that moment visible and manifest on account of that rift in its surface. It joins again, the blackness descends once more, the hail, the colourlessness of all the world, the houses once more look like clouds. And indeed it is impossible, without an effort, to dissociate in our minds the idea of London from the idea of a vast cloud, beneath a cloud as vast. 
the memory cannot otherwise conceive of all these grey buildings, of all these grey people. You do not, for instance, call up in your mind all the houses you would pass between Charing Cross and Knightsbridge. They fade into one mass, and because that mass is one you will never touch and finger, it seems cloud-like enough. But all the limitless stretches of roofs that you have never seen, the streets that you will never travel, the miles and miles of buildings, the myriads of plane-trees, of almonds, of elms, all these appalling regions of London that to every individual of us must remain unknown and untraversed, all those things fuse in our minds into one cloud. And the corporations, the water-boards, the dock-boards, the railway organisations, the bodies of men who keep the parks in order, the armies who sweep in the streets, all these are cloud-like too. They seem unnatural, all these things, and London itself is at times apt to seem unreal. So that when we come across a park with sharp folds in the land, sharp dips, sudden rises, it is almost astonishing that anything so natural and so real should remain in the heart of this cloud beneath a cloud. For, little by little, the Londoner comes to forget that his London is built upon real earth. He forgets that under the pavements there are hills, forgotten watercourses, springs and marshland. And, beneath and amongst all those clouds, thunder-clouds, the clouds of buildings, the clouds of corporations, there hurries still the great swarm of tiny men and women, each hugging desperately his own soul, his own hopes, his own passions, his own individuality. To destroy these individualities is impossible. I am acquainted with a reformer, however, whose ideal of impersonality is so close, so stern and so unflinching, that he would abolish all names of persons, substituting numbers. He would have all men and women who perform any public functions, all candidates for state examinations, go masked and dressed in cloaks that should destroy all distinction of figure and limbs. Physical beauty must be concealed, physical defects must be levelled up, personality must go. This, of course, is La Justice Nouvelle, the new justice, and it is obvious that these impersonal corporations of the future cannot work ideally without some such precautions against favouritism, or against the personal magnetism that gives sway over crowds. But, in the meantime, those days seem far enough off. Our street-corner Johnsons, if they cannot any longer get the ear of the world, are, none the less, Johnsons. Our unpublished poets are, none the less, poets. It is only the audience that is unreachable, and perhaps it is only the world that is the loser. But, after all, no doubt it matters little. What is of importance is whether the sum of human happiness be affected in this great town. Westminster building improvements sweep away whole crowds of human associations. They run up barracks that apparently are distinguished by no single merit. But those Georgian houses that are disappearing swept away in their day houses older, streets narrower, halls where still greater history was made. Those Georgian streets, courts, cul-de-sac, stood mostly for brocaded coats, for powdered wigs, for brilliant talkers, great gamblers, women very dissolute and men very coarse, 
they stood in fact rather for still-life gossip than for national actions rather for memoirs than for history but the older streets that they displaced stood for kings great nobles great churchmen westminster hall which has given place to that great ugly box with its futile tracery of misplaced ornaments westminster hall saw history the times then were less spacious and london being so much smaller the really insignificant acts of kings nobles and churchmen counted to an extent that no single act of any one man could to-day count and that tendency is inevitable as the world grows broader as the cities stretch out history becomes impossible it was already as far as london was concerned over and done with when the young pretender failed in the forty-five had he taken london sacked the city crowned himself in westminster misruled caused new revolutions to foment new deeds of blood and rapine to set the stones of the court whispering history might have continued to be made until near our own day nay even london itself might have been checked for a century or two of its growth since turbulence and the civil wars inevitable to the stuarts would have delayed the coming of arkwrights and Kays, have put back the clock of our industrial developments have influenced the fate of the whole world but history of that type ended with culloden the chronicler had to turn his pen to the accounts of the great impersonal movements as it was then that cotton spinning was established it was then that great depression having overtaken the agricultural districts immense bodies of the rural populations moved into the great towns the race of memoir writers began to discover the witty the sensible the profusely dressed or the profligate great figures now those two are done with since as the background grows the figure dwindles in proportion and loses its importance amongst the vaster crowds upon the canvas we have no longer as it were pictures of sir thomas gresham m burning in the presence of the king the king's ious to a fabulous amount instead in the historic picture of to-day it is the sovereign who is now much less a human being than the representative of a political theory tending service at st paul's met by the lord mayor whose name nine-tenths of london ignores the sheriffs and the corporation of the city of london the city itself has no longer any visible bounds walls or demarcations it is a postal district e c an abstraction still playing at being an individuality on our new chronicle canvas the lord mayor is a tiny speck that sir thomas gresham m of the older picture could swallow the sovereign is not much larger the spectators make a large bulk and the major part of the composition is filled up with london the impersonal buildings the columns pilasters the shop fronts the advertisement posters the cloud the man with an eye to the future may even wonder whether those heavy buildings that cloud pressing so heavily upon the hills and the marshes of the ancient river mouth may not be little more than an obsolete incubus or at least an obsolescent one the point is whether the old building the heavy permanent mass of stone timber and brick is not a mere survival of the worship of the spirit of the hearth the point is whether except for that sentimental reason 
portable buildings of corrugated iron, of woven wire, even for the summer, of paper, might not be more sanitary, more in keeping with the spirit of the age, less of a tie to the people of the future, our children. For as London weakens the human ties, so it weakens the spirit of the family and the spirit of hospitality. I knew, for instance, an old gentleman who would never quarrel with anyone in his own house because of his respect for his own roof. He would quarrel with no one under a friend's roof out of respect for his friends. He would not even write an unfriendly letter in his own or a friend's house. Consequently, if he wanted to have it out with a man, he had to invite him to some public place, or if he wanted to write to the Times, denouncing some public job, he would retire to the nearest hotel and call for a pint of claret, pens and paper. He would himself acknowledge that these proceedings were rather exaggerated, but his instinctive feelings in the matter were so strong that not even the necessity of a bath-chair in extreme old age could prevent his going to that hotel for that purpose. That feeling, I fancy, has died out, or is dying, in London. We have slackened all these ties, and the sanguine reformer foresees also a gradual decay of respect for family portraits. It is, after all, to house heirlooms, he says, that we build great houses or inhabit them. We collect our grandfather's old, too heavy, insect-infected chairs and chiffoniers, punch-bowls, spoons or bedsteads. These things are full of cobwebs, dirt, microbes, and the old houses, that are largely our ideals still, are still more insanitary and demoralising. We even have a London proverb, three moves are worse than a fire. That is because we have too much of this unwieldy bric-a-brac. Really, says this reformer, we ought, in the interests of hygiene, to cultivate an extreme cleanliness, and that is only possible with a minimum of furniture. We should promote, as far as possible, portability in our houses, because ground that has been dwelt upon too long loses its resilience, its power of assimilating human debris. Thus we must pull down our London, burn our ancestral furniture, melt down our punch-bowls, recognise that our associations, as far as they are ancestral, are so many cobwebs, and send the best of old family portraits into the museums. These last will soon, says the reformer, seeing his dream as a reality of to-morrow, be the sole heavy buildings to raise lofty roofs and turrets above the plateau of small houses, houses of aluminium, of woven wire, of corrugated iron, of paper pulp, small houses containing only a mat or two, a vase for flowers, a cooking-stove, houses that we shall pack onto motor-cars when the fit moves us to go out into the fields for a month or two, or when business becomes slack in London itself, or when we desire to air our camping-site. The obsolete system of land tenure would facilitate this, the growing restlessness of the people, the desire for change of scene, the dearth of domestic labour, and, above all, according to this reformer, the fact that no house ought to be more than twenty years old. I suppose that such a London, with its portable houses, its masked and numbered inhabitants, perhaps we should arrive at such a pitch of impersonality that a child would recognise its mother, like a sheep, by the sense of smell. 
this London would be sane, sanitary and beneficent to the human race. Most of us, being poor humanity, a prey to the illusions of dead poets, will shudder at what is raw and naked in this idea. But what is the alternative London that is offered us by the man who upholds the past? It is a vast stretch of mounds, a gigantic quagmire with, here and there, a pillar of a medieval church serving as a perch for a hawk's nest, and here and there a clump of trees, descendants of those in our parks, in whose shadows foxes and badgers shall herd, on whose tops the herons shall nest. The praiser of times past will tell us that the breed is deteriorating physically, it is growing hopelessly neurasthenic, it is losing its business energy. It has sapped all the blood from the counties, it is closing its door to emigrants from the countries, it is breaking with the old social conventions, it is running blindly to perdition. End of section 13